everybody and welcome back to The Extras. My name is Sam. And I'm Jack. And it is great to be with you. We are here, here in the holidays. Jack, oh, you know, I've got to take a, take a bit of issue with you. We normally have our holidays off, but you preach such a cracker on Sunday. <laughs> and so many questions have come in that we sort of feel like we need to dive in and tackle 17 questions today. That's right. And, uh, yeah, so that's, that's some, some great preaching there. Tell us, uh, for those who uh, perhaps... Aren't up to speed. Sunday, uh, for many of us, we were in 1 Kings 17. That's right. Yeah, 17 uh, questions for 1 Kings 17. Yeah, that's hey? right. Yeah, tell, tell us all about uh, what, what's going on in 1 Kings 17. Sure thing. So, I gave a little bit of a, a background kind of context. Uh, the world of 1 Kings 17, Ahab is the king of Israel. His wife, Jezebel, from uh, the northern land of Sidon. Uh, the two of them are leading the people astray, worshipping the storm god Baal. Into that world steps Elijah, the prophet. God sends him, and the first thing that happens is the rain stops. Uh, the Lord shows that he's the one who has the power to withhold rain or to give it, to withhold life or to give it. And the whole rest of this chapter, you see God, through Elijah, demonstrating that he alone is the one who has the power to provide, to provide life to those who are starving, to provide life even to the dead. We see this mm. wonderful picture of the God who is able to give life. Yeah. Nice. Okay. Uh, and then, uh, so it's it really good. Lots of questions about all kinds of things, about miracles, about the Word of God, about resurrection, uh, hope, all sorts of things. So we're going to dive in, uh, see if we can run our way through them. And I uh, just want to say a huge thanks for all your questions. Uh, we love the questions that come in on a Sunday, and they really are helpful for us and help us to think. So thanks for, keep, keep texting them in. Uh, we'll, we'll even do it in the holidays if, uh, <laughs> if you keep sending questions. So if you ask, we will answer. That's right. Here we go. So the first one uh, is in, in the beginning in verse 2. The question says, hello. Oh, hello. Uh, what, what, what does the word of the Lord coming to him, Elijah, looks like, look like? Is God speaking verbally? Uh, should we expect to have uh, these kind of words from God, and what might they look like if, they, if we get them? Fantastic question. So that phrase, the word of the Lord came to Elijah or whoever else it is, that's a, it's a common phrase throughout the Old Testament, in particular the prophets. That's mm. one of the ways that the Old Testament shows you that someone is a prophet. It's this kind of stereotyped phrase, the word of the Lord comes to them. Various points, you get hints of what that actually means. Sometimes it is very clearly God audibly speaking to the prophet and relaying the message for him to then go out and speak, him or her. There are prophetesses too. Yeah. Um, sometimes it's a little, uh, yeah, different to that. You know, you see Isaiah and Isaiah 6 sees this vision. He's kind of, you know, taken to the throne room of God and he sees the, the Holy One of Israel. Sometimes it's this visual thing. So there's different ways that the, the word of the Lord comes to someone, but mm. it, it, it always does have this character of, you know, words and this specific revelation. It's not like just a vague kind of feedling that Elijah got or anything like that. No, he, he's, yeah. he's been communicated to by God giving a message to pass on. That's what a prophet is. And I take it that's because God is a personal God who speaks. And yeah. say he's not a spirit or... Oh, he's a spirit, so he's not a force, sorry. Mm, uh, he, yeah. He's a personal God. and um, yeah. That's right. We use words because he uses words. That's, that's right. That's where we're in his image. Yep. Um, should we expect similar words? Yeah, I think to answer that question, we got to step back a little bit and see how the Bible is this story that unfolds over time. It's not just one, you know, monolithic book where everything is exactly the same, you know, in the, in the Old Testament, we do see God speaking in these clearly verbal ways to particular people to speak his word. Mm. Uh, is that true for us today? Uh, a verse that's helpful to wrestle with as we ask that question is the start of the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. Mm. Hebrews 1, 1 says, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son 
whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. So you see there just a little snapshot of the way that God's mode of speaking has changed even over the course of the Bible. In the past, through the prophets, in the last days, God has spoken by his son, by his son Jesus. So Jesus comes to us not just as a man, but as as a word. That's you know part of why at the beginning of John's gospel, the word became flesh. He is God's last and final and ultimate communication of who mm. he is. So in the past, God gave messages to the prophets to speak. That was one way he communicated. To us now in this age, the, the main and chief and ultimate way God communicates to us is through Jesus and what he's done and what he's said and the record of that that we have in, in the New Testament, in the Bible. Mm. So... I don't think we necessarily should expect God to speak words to us in the same way. I mean, it's possible. God could do anything. God can, can do certainly. Words. Exactly, yeah. God, yeah. God can speak to you if he wants to. But even if he does, that is not going to be a, a new revelation that communicates something mm. different to or above and beyond what you have in the Bible. Because everything yeah. that God uh, has said to his people that we need to hear is written for us in the pages of scripture. Yeah, That's the, the last word that we need. So God can do anything he wants. But yeah, if, we, if we're looking for what God communicates to us, you don't have to go anywhere further than the scriptures you have it you know if it's in your hands there it is you know you don't have to wait for a word you've got the word so we should read it very good Um, okay moving down uh, down to verse 12 there's a tragic moment in the story where the the, the widow um, and her her son it seems are so hungry and at the end of their kind of time that they've got just enough food for one last meal and then verse 12 the the woman says tragically I'm going to uh, take a few sticks home presumably to make a fire uh, and to make a meal for myself and my son, that we may eat it and then die. Mm. Um, tragic moment. Now, yeah. uh, a question's coming here. You made the point that that's sort of hinting at the fact that she's on the on the verge of starvation. Mm. Uh, a question came in saying, could could that be referencing um, her, her sort of intention to suicide to, to take mm. take her own life at that point? Yeah, my answer will be, I don't think so. I mean, one of the things about biblical narrative is. Often we don't get all the details. You don't get every character's motivation at every point. So we're not really told. Mm. But I think the most natural way of reading these events is we're here, we're talking about food. You know, that's that's the thing at issue. Elijah has asked her for food and water. Yep. She said, I haven't got any. Um, well, she's got a little bit. She's going to eat that. And then, and then the the sentence is very kind of, as I said, it's a matter of fact. It's just, it's just kind of, and this and this and this, you know. I'm going to go home. I'm going to make a meal. We're going to eat it. Then we die. So, mm. yeah, I think that this, it's this expression of kind of hopeless resignation to the fact that when the food runs out, the only next logical consequence is death. So, this, yeah. This is the end of the line, is, is exactly. sort of what she's, she's acknowledging. Yeah, that's yeah. how I read it, I think. Yeah. Okay, thank you. Um, now, uh, the woman, she's a pre- presumably, uh, given where she lives, she's a Baal worshipper. Mm. Um, she came to Elijah with her dead son, perhaps, perhaps in protest, uh, verse 18. Um, but also possibly did she have the thought that, that Elijah could change her circumstances? Is there a, a hint or a sense that she had hope that the true God would act? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, and again, like I said just earlier, it's, it's often hard to read into the motivations of the characters. Mm. I think in this case, I mean, did she have a hope that the true God would act? I think the woman's expectation is that God already has acted. Mm. That's what she says, verse 18, you know. What have you done against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? Like, I think she's saying, this is what God has done. You know, she, for whatever reason, you know, she's carrying the guilt and the sins that everyone carries, right? And her reading of those circumstances is the reason her boy's died is because God has come to visit her in judgment. Mm. So I don't, yeah, I don't think she's sitting there thinking, oh, but maybe Elijah can bring him back from the dead. Like, you know. And so this is more of an outburst of of anger and grief more so than a a request for help. 
isn't it? Exactly. Like yeah. I'm, I, I don't think there was a single thought running through her mind saying yeah. that this boy's coming back. I think yeah. she's just there yeah. pointing the finger, accusing God of, of being cruel at this point. Yeah. yeah. Like I said before. So, so then a follow-up question here is so mm-hmm. why does why does she blame Elijah and then why does God bring her son back to life? Yeah, I mean, she. I think she points the finger at Elijah because he is the the representative of God. You know, that's what the prophet does. She calls mm-hmm. him man of God. He's yep. the the religious man in the room, if you like. Yeah. Uh, he's been staying with her, and it seems as though that the the fact that the man of God is with her at the, at the start, you know, she was probably happy with that. While the the food was you know continuing and the the flour and the oil didn't run out, but now it seems that having the man of God with her is, has turned from blessing to curse because her mm-hmm. son has died. So why does she blame him? Because he is the representative of God, and God has done this terrible thing. Mm. So, why then does God bring her son back to life? Uh, I'll say a couple of things again that I said on Sunday. I think, in part, this is—I mean, just in the in the kind of in the frame of the, this story on its own, this is an expression of God's kindness. Mm. Uh, it's Him inverting the woman's expectations. You know, she thought God is this cruel, vindictive figure who's come to visit her sins, and. The resurrection of the son shows that that's not what God is like. And uh, he is the true and living God who can bring life. That's what he wants her to know at this moment. And that's what yeah. she comes to believe down to the end when she says, I know that Elijah is a man of God. The word from his mouth is truth. In the broader frame of the book of Kings, uh, again, remember the context. You have Israel going after the storm God, God showing that he is the one who provides life and provides the rain and all those things. Here you have God showing that he is so powerful to provide life to his people it's not just that he can sustain those who are starving. He can bring life even to those who have died. Mm. So it's this emphatic, you know, amazing picture of the power of God. And I think I'm right in saying this is the first time that resurrection happens in the Bible. Yeah. Like as Christians, you know, we, we read this and it's amazing, but we're kind of used to it because you read the gospel God, narratives. God and, raises the dead. That's what it yeah, is. Jesus yeah. is pulling people out of tombs all over the place <laughs> in the gospels. But if you're, you know, an Old Testament believer, you know, if you're someone living in the time of Elijah... The whole history of the human race has been death is the end. Yeah. And then now you have this, this tiny little insignificant town and this woman who she's not, she's not even named. And this is the moment where God chooses to reveal that actually death doesn't have to be the end. Like it's, it's mind blowing. And it shows us what kind yeah. of God he is and how powerful he is. Yeah. And, That's and, why and I wonder it. if given that this is the very first time that Elijah pops up in the Bible and this is what happens, it's quite a sort of up in lights introduction here is Mm. the god that elijah serves you know the one who raises the dead and it should blow our minds a little bit rather than being oh well of course they expected that yeah indeed yeah okay uh let's keep powering on um what's the significance of the way that Elijah just stretches himself over the dead boy three times is is he identifying with the suffering of the mother and the son or what's he doing it's a weird posture that he takes (laughs) it is yeah Short answer is, I don't know. Again, it's a little detail that's not explained. Uh, I haven't dug uh, all that far into it, so yeah, I'm not sure. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it does seem to be this really, you know, physical gesture associated with prayer, and, you know, I think sometimes that sounds weird to us because we, we don't typically bring a lot of physicality to our prayer life, you know. In yeah. the old days, you would kneel to pray, and you know, yes. for us that's weird and formalistic, although I think it's, you know, it can be a good practice. There's yep. There is this, like, real kind of dramatic you know yeah. he's fully involved like you know yeah, bodily invested yeah. in his prayers kind of thing i think that's part of it but beyond that i'm not really sure yeah okay that's fine um we'll, we'll keep moving along mm. um longish question here um firstly did, did did uh did elijah know that god would um raise the dead boy or was it one of those kind of where he didn't presume to know what God was going to do, trusting God could do it, but if God kind of didn't do it, a bit like Daniel, you know, and his mates when they're chucked into the 
um, the furnace, furnace. that they say, look, we know that God can save us, but even if he doesn't, we're going to serve him anyway. Is Mm. it that kind of thing? Or or is Elijah confident? And if Elijah was like confident and sure of what God was going to do, does that sort of dictate how we should pray a little bit? Should we sort of show a little bit more? We know this is what God's going to do and therefore sort of proclaim it, kind of name it and claim it almost, Mm. a, a little bit of that kind of stuff so that people can see the power of God. Yeah, big question. There's lots in that. Let's let's unpack that a little along the way. Um, did Elijah know that God would uh, raise the boy? Um, again, we're not told his motivation. I don't really know. But you look at, I mean, what have you got? So on the one hand, you've got, like I said before, history of the world up to this point is dead people stay dead. So mm-hmm. there's a lot, because, you know, a lot would, would suggest that this is, you know, going to be the reality for this boy as well, right? Death is pretty final. Um, Elijah has seen the miraculous provision of God throughout this chapter so far. He's, he's seen how the Lord sent ravens to supply for him when he was hiding out east of the Jordan. He's seen God provide for him and the widow and her son, providing the food that doesn't run out. Like, he's clearly seen the miraculous power of God to provide life to people who are kind of on the way to death. So, mm. in a sense, it's not a huge leap to wonder that maybe God could even raise someone who has died. Like, I, think, I mean, it is still a huge leap at one level. <laughs> so, as he comes to pray, he, you know, he's, he says... Lord, my God, let this boy's life return to him. Verse 29. It's a really bold prayer. Like, it, it's, it's yeah. not a kind of, maybe God, if you can do it, like, please, it's nice. Like, God, do this. And I think the thing in between that that's really interesting to think about is verse 20. Uh, Elijah cried out to the Lord, Lord, my God, have you brought tragedy even on this widow I am staying with by causing her son to die? Mm. There seems to be this appeal to the character of God at that point. It's almost like God saying, look, Lord, you've you've... You commanded this widow to provide for me. That's what he says back in verse 9. That's what, as in what God says. He's been staying with this woman, you know, through the woman's food. She's been supporting Elijah. And, God, and Elijah is saying to God, like, after all that, you know, you're working through this woman. She's providing for me. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm the prophet. I'm, I'm doing your work. Like, are you really going to bring this tragedy on her? So it's mm. almost like this. It's almost like looking at God and his character and saying, God, this, this isn't who you are. Like, yeah. you, is, this, is this really what's happening? It's kind of like, you know, Moses standing before God back in Exodus 32 and 33 after the golden calf and saying, you know, God's saying, I'm going to wipe out the nation. And God says, you know, but you made promises to the ancestors, you know, like, are you really going to do that, God? I think it's a similar kind of thing here. So it seems like Elijah may have the inkling that this doesn't feel right. You know, this isn't what God would do. So maybe he does have the expectation that God is going to to bring life to the dead. Because he knows the character of God. Yeah. It's kind of like he's calling on God to be who he is. I think that's right. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's it. Yeah. So, I mean, the next part of this question, uh, what does that mean for us? You know, should we therefore bring the same kind of boldness and, you know, we, we know that God can do anything? Like, mm. yeah, I mean, what do we do with that? Um, in part, we'll, we'll get to this question, I think, a little bit more later on as we come to think about the, the wake up olive yeah. stuff. We'll get to that question at the end. Yep. Um, yep. But to say something now, yeah, I think it, we do want to believe that God can do anything. And if, if we go through life as, you know, practical atheists who sure. never even ask God to, to um, you know, provide what we need day to day. I mean, God tells us, you know, you know give us today our daily bread is what we're meant to pray. We are, we are meant to pray for God to provide. That's and, right. you know, we ask God to do the, the greatest miracle of seeing unbelievers come to spiritual life. You know, mm. we, we pray that God would, would act because we believe he can. So, mm. If you do go through life not expecting God to ever do anything, then I challenge you to look again at the God of the Bible and yeah. see that He is a God who, He's not dead as the philosophers say. He's not doing nothing. He's not distant as the the yeah. deists say. He's yep. He's involved in our world. So yeah, we we call on Him. Absolutely. 
On the other side of that, I think we also got to be careful thinking about, you know, a really kind of uh, overly triumphalistic approach saying, look, God can do anything, you know, we should be out there in the world just, you know, declaring what God's going to do and then praying for him to do it to, to show the world, look, we, we prayed and it happened, like, you know, that's what God does, like, look and see the miracle. Yeah. I think that kind of attitude, it, in, in, I mean, in part, it's, you know, Jesus says, you know, don't test the Lord your God, like, there's that element of it that we, that we risk running kind of presuming upon God and demanding him to do something as if it, you know he must obey our will like that's that's clearly a, a dangerous line to run God's not our servant we're his yeah um but even more like it's it's, it's, it's this so often the way that God works is through you know the quiet uh, ordinary means of life like we often you know we want the dramatic we want the the fireworks because you know that's gonna give us some kind of confidence but I think the way that God's called us to, to pray is to, you know, go into our room and, you know, in the mm. quietness on your own. That's the Matthew 6 kind of line. Yeah, I think we should expect God to be at work, but not be out there on the, the stage kind of yeah. dramatically demanding it. And I think tied to that, we, we, we pray in light of what God has told us that he's going to do and where God has told us the hope lies. And so I, I think being on this side of the cross and knowing God's plans for the universe, which is ultimately to restore this creation once Jesus returns, um, you know, when Jesus returns. And so a big part of what Christians are called to pray for is the return of Jesus. Yeah. Come Lord Jesus. You know, that's sort of the end of the Bible, the, the last word that we're left mm. with. And I think that, that um, you know, not to take away from any of the stuff that you just said, God can act and God does act in the here and now, but where he points our gaze and I think where he directs our prayers is to the world to come, that that is where these issues will ultimately be dealt with. Mm. And so sometimes the best thing you can pray in the midst of tragedy as you walk with someone through grief and difficulty is you stand with them and you say, this sucks. Come Lord Jesus, bring on that day where death will be undone and where suffering and sickness and pain will be undone. Cause I think that's where the whole kind of direction of scripture points our gaze. Yeah. Yeah. Helpful. Yeah. All right. Uh, now moving along um, at the end of this passage, there's this lovely moment where, um, the, 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 the woman seems to acknowledge that, that, uh, God, uh, God is God and what, what Elijah says about him is true. Verse 24. Mm. Um, wh- why does it take till the sun is raised to get this reaction from the woman? Previously, she calls him your God, you know, Elijah's yeah. God. But this is the point where she's got the never ending pack of Tim Tams, you know, <laughs> she's right. got yeah. food coming out of her ears mm. and yet she can't acknowledge God. Then why does it take till, uh, resurrection to, to get that reaction? Again, this is a narrative, and it's it's real, and it's up and down. So I imagine as the the woman was living with Elijah, experiencing the never-ending flow of oil and flour, I'm sure she was thinking, yeah, this guy seems to be like a legit prophet. But then the thing that train wrecks all about is her son dies. Yeah. And, and that tragedy of verse 17 plunges her into the grief and the guilt of verse 18. She mm. says, you know, did you come and remind me of my sin and kill my son? So at that point, it seems pretty clear that the, the blessing that she thought she was getting has turned to curse. So, mm. yeah, I think that she... Then, whatever she may have thought about God before that moment has clearly been turned upside down by yeah. this horrific event. But then the dramatic reversal that the boy doesn't stay dead and comes back to life, that, you know, that is now <laughs> incontrovertible evidence that Elijah truly is the, the man of a real God speaking real words of truth. So that's the moment where she's like, yep, yeah, this is... Yeah, if there was any doubt, that's all gone. She's sure now. Yeah. So I think nice. that's how it works. Okay. 
Very good. All right, a couple of quick questions on our Mark 5 reading before we dive into a few other more sort of deeper theological questions. Mm. Um, so Mark 5 has a similar story where Jesus raises a little girl. Um, and in, in Mark 5 verse 42, we get this curious little detail that the girl that Jesus raised, he says, little girl, get up. And then we get told she was 12 years old, kind of in brackets almost. As a, mm. um, but it feels like a, an important detail given that we're given it. Any reason you think, Jack, why um, Mark gives us that bit of info? Yeah, I think the details almost always are important if they're given to us. The Bible writers leave out a lot of things about Jesus' life, so when they put something in, they must yeah. have a reason for it. Mm. Sometimes it's hard to know. Like, I often think of when, at the end of John's Gospel, Jesus, the risen Jesus, sends them out to fish. They bring in, you know, put the net on the other side of the boat. You know, we haven't caught anything all night. And then they bring in 153 fish. It's quite a detail. And you start wondering, why 153? Yeah. And the last I looked into it, no one really knows. Yes. It's just big, I think. It's <laughs> specifically big. Specifically big. There you go. Yeah, that's um, my read. Yeah. yeah. Um, Matthew 5, sorry, Mark 5, 12-year-old girl. Um, the other time that you see the number 12 in this passage is the woman who's been bleeding for 12 years. Yeah. So this is this passage is a... A mark and sandwich yep. is the, the phrase they use. You have kind of one story sandwiched between mm. another. The Jairus' daughter thing starts, and then halfway through, the, the woman who's been bleeding comes and she's healed, and then the, the girl is raised after that. So mm. you're kind of meant to read the stories together when you yep. have that construction. The fact that they're tied together by the number 12 yep. just makes it even closer. So I yeah. think that the two narratives together, you know, you've got the, the sick woman who's healed, you've got the dead girl who's raised, both sickness and death are powerless before Jesus, I think is the thing that comes out of that. Mm. So it links them together. Beyond that, you know, I, I don't know if there's deeper significance. Like there may well be. You know, 12 is the, the number of Israel. So there's, you know, yeah, it's always got this similar connection as well. I mean, well. we were talking about this before, and, uh, but as, as since we've been talking, I've been just churning it over in my head. I, I wonder too, in Mark, there's a bit of geography. So when we're outside of Israel here, I mean, this is a... Um, a, a, a Roman centurion's daughter, I think. Um, is, is that right? Um, oh, no, sorry, uh, synagogue leader. So, no, we're right in... Sorry, my bad. We're, I think we're back in Galilee we're at this point. back yeah. in Galilee. We're in the land. So, yep, Israel 12, that works well. Let's, <laughs> sure. let's, let's roll with that. Yep. Sounds good to me. Yep. Yep. Good. Never, never go off the script. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, the other one is, uh, at the end of this passage, uh, verse 43, Jesus tells them, don't tell anyone about this. Like... To me, if, if there was a resurrection going on, mm. I'd be like, let's tell them all. Here he is, Jesus, the, the raiser of the dead. Yeah. Um, why does he tell them to be quiet? It's fascinating, isn't it? You know, if the message of Jesus is going to get out, like surely this is the, the this is just going to send it viral, right? And Jesus right. says, no, shut it down. Yep. No one gets to know. Yep. As you read through Mark's gospel, all the gospels really, but particularly Mark, it's strong here. There is this theme again and again. Jesus tells people, don't tell anyone. And the, the phrase that's often used for that is there's this, messianic secret mm. going on through through uh, the gospel story. Um, part of the issue is that as Jesus uh, goes around and does his miracles and um, the kind of the attention heats up, at different points it makes Jesus' ministry harder. Um, mm. So there's one point where uh, in the end of Mark chapter 1, uh, Jesus heals a man with uh, leprosy, I believe it is. Mm-hmm. Um, he cleanses the leper and again, uh, strong warning, uh, Mark one forty four. see that you don't tell this to anyone. But go and show yourself to the priest, offer the, the testimony. Instead, the leper goes out and begins to talk freely, spreading the news. And then verse 45 says, As a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places. Mm. So part of the issue is, as the, the message gets out, the crowds come, uh, the, the attention heats up, you know, the attention of the Pharisees is provoked. 
um, Jesus' ministry gets harder and harder, in a sense, as more people know. So I think part of the answer is, you know, he wants to keep it quiet because the time hasn't yet come. Mm. As he says in John again and again, you know, the time for the Pharisees' attention to come to him and for the, you know, the murderous rage to, to get going, there's yep. still work to do in terms of revealing who he is and what he's come to do. Yep. So he tries to clamp down the message to, you know, yeah. Wait till the time is right. Wait till the time is right. Yeah. And, and he, you know, he's worried that they'll make him king by force. And, and Jesus knows his, his purpose is to be, is to, is to go to Calvary, not mm. to the, not straight to the kind of the throne of Israel. Yeah. Um, it has to go via the cross. So anyway. Indeed. All, all right. Uh, very helpful. Let's move on. A couple of theological questions here, uh, which I think are fantastic ones. Um, mm. The first one is, uh, Baal is, is sort of at the center of this story in, in, uh, one, uh, 2 Kings 17. Um, do false gods really exist? Is Baal mm. a thing? Uh, um, yeah. Uh, or, or was it just something, you know, that people made up and started worshipping, uh, but there's really just the one true God? Or, or yeah, what, what's... Is there a reality to Baal? Yeah. It's it's a fascinating question. Um, and there's a lot to say. Uh, where to start? Um, so, does Baal exist? Um, I think as you work through the old... Uh, big okay sorry zoom out a little bit big yeah. picture there is a, this progressive revelation thing going on there's a story that gets unfolded throughout the bible here so there's a couple of points to check in with along the way in the mm-hmm. old testament it's i think it's right to say that the old testament doesn't ever say that the gods that the other nations worship are not real mm. so along the way you see like uh, this declaration that idols you know the wooden statue of the god isn't real you know yes, it just doesn't do anything wood. yeah isaiah 44 45 he says you know you chop down a tree and with half of it you make a fire and make your lunch and the other half you bow down to it as your god like it's stupid it's just a block of wood yes but i think the general sense in the old testament is the spiritual reality behind that block of wood yes. i think is something that the old testament holds out as mm. a serious thing yep the, the language throughout the old testament you know a book like deuteronomy often call the lord yahweh God of gods. Um, it doesn't say the other gods aren't real. It says that Yahweh is the God who is God over over all of them. He's the one who, you know, there's no one else beside him, mm. as in there are people under him. Yeah. So I think that the, the reality of the other gods is I get the sense that God has uh, entrusted, you know, these other nations to these real supernatural beings uh, who are, for the most part, hostile and uh, mm. opposed to God. Mm. And so... Along the way, you see that there's these battles between gods. So one of the things that happens throughout the the Exodus, for example, is the Exodus is not just a clash between Moses and Pharaoh. It's a clash between Yahweh and the gods of Egypt. And the fact that God just smashes them and destroys the nation and yeah. um, leaves this nation like, you know, firstborn sons dead. It's, it's this victory of God over the gods. Yeah. And yet it's interesting that even with those, you know, you see this particularly at the start with the plagues in, in mm. the Exodus, the first couple, the magicians of of Egypt are actually able to go toe to toe with Yahweh. You know, they're like, you know, yeah, sure, you can make your your staff into a snake. Boom, so can we. And yeah. they do it. But and the text tells you by their dark arts. That's right. So there there is some spiritual power there, but it's but then all of a sudden from plague sort of three onwards, Yahweh just sort of, you know, sort of steps up and then, you know, they, they can't match it and Yahweh is shown to be the true God. That's right, yeah. Another example from um, Kings, I'm just going to try and find it. This one is, um, yeah, this one, I need to think about this more. It's, it's almost kind of um, spooky. Um, 
Two Kings 3. Um, so this story, there's uh, this rebellion by the nation of Moab. Um, Judah and Israel get together for a little bit. Um, they have a little alliance here trying to mm. take out the Moabites. And they're, they're kind of, you know, they're, they're winning the battle. God's giving them the victory. Um, 2 Kings 3 verse 26. When the king of Moab saw that the battle had gone against him, he took with him 700 swordsmen to break through to the king of Edom, but they failed. Then he took his firstborn son, who was to succeed him as king, and offered him as a sacrifice on the city wall, the fury against Israel was great, so that they withdrew and returned mm. to their own land. And there's different ways to read that. One way you can read it is, the king of Moab offers his son as a child sacrifice to his God, and the fury from his God drives Israel back. Mm. I mean, you know, it could also be the fury of the soldiers they're inspired, and, you know, giving courage to do it. But, yep, yep. yeah, you know, I think I think there are these hints throughout that the the real spiritual warfare going on is that these these mm. other gods, they're these real evil spiritual figures. And in a sense, you know, we, we kind of, I think we've, we hear that and we, we feel uncomfortable because we get this idea that there's only one God. Mm. Because, well, I mean, that's true. Like, there is only one God who is the Lord, who's the Lord of heaven and earth, who made everything. Yeah. But I don't think that precludes other evil spiritual beings. Well, because Satan's out there as well. And mm. we know that, you know, he is described as a god as well. He's, he's the god of this age, according little, little to... Little G God. Little G God, yeah. yeah. So we, we hear the word God and we automatically put a capital G on it and think, well, there can only be one God. But yeah. the way the Bible presents it to us is, yeah, there's these other spiritual beings and many of them are evil, but they still have power. Mm. God has still entrusted them with power. Yeah. Um, as part of how he subjects the world to his wrath. You know, we're subjected to evil things as, as part of the punishment for sin. That's kind of the, yeah. the language of Romans 1 as well, isn't it? Yeah. In all of that, the other thing to say is that God is the one who is utterly sovereign over and has completely disarmed and destroyed these powers as well. So, you know, a passage like Colossians 2 verse 15, you know, mm. Jesus has triumphed over the powers and authorities in the heavens made a public spectacle, spectacle of them at the cross. Mm. Like, they, they're nothing. They... In the Old Testament, they do come with this real power, but I think our expectation now is that Jesus has won. He's crushed them. Yeah. You know, Satan's still prowling around like a lion looking yeah. for someone to devour. He's still got power, but yeah. in the grand scheme of things, he's done and dusted. His, yeah. his time is numbered. You know, Satan has been bound in the language of Revelation. Yeah. Jesus is the king. Yeah. So, so drawing all that together, mm. it's probably fair to say that um, there, there, is a, uh, there are heavenly forces, spiritual forces, opposed to God in the same way that there are earthly creatures mm. in opposition to God. Yeah. Uh, they parade as gods uh, of the nations in the Old Testament. We see as the New Testament comes that actually they're just demonic forces um, yeah. under the sort of, you know, under the leadership of Satan and all of which are defeated by Christ at the cross. Uh, that's what Colossians 2 kind of talks about, isn't that's it? That's right, yeah. triumphed over them via the cross. Yes, thank you um, for bringing together my rambling thoughts. That's a yeah, good summary. So, so, but yeah. We, yeah, so they're not capital G gods, but they are. But there are real spiritual powers out there, but we yeah. need to um, take heart that Christ has defeated them. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, just changing gears now a little bit... Um, you mentioned Jezebel um, mm. as the sort of the the, the ice queen of, of uh, Phoenicia, who who um, the white uh, witch, yeah, the, the, the white witch who right. uh, led you know uh, the uh, the charge, I guess, of, of, of idol worship and, and yeah, uh, yeah. She, she's a very uh, negative character, and she gets referenced right throughout the Bible. And someone's mm. texted and said, "Look." I've heard of Jezebel. I often hear her kind of mentioned with regard to sort of sexual immorality in particular. Yeah. Uh, I know in kind of online meme culture, Christian meme culture, she's mm. uh, Jezebel's a bit of the seductress um, 
I yeah. quite, always imagine it with kind of a, you know, Alabama Southern draw, you know, she got a real Jezebel spirit. Yeah, sort yeah. Of thing. <laughs> that's right. Uh, why is she always connected to, to sexual immorality? Yeah, good question. I mean, one of the places you see it clearly in the Bible is in Revelation 2. Mm-hmm. So Jesus is writing these letters to the different churches. The church in the town of Thyatira followed this false prophetess woman. I don't think her name actually was Jezebel, but she's called Jezebel by Jesus to kind of characterize her and connect her with the Jezebel of kings to show how bad she is, basically. Revelation 2.20, Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. Mm. So you've got sexual immorality there. But you've also got idolatry, and that connection is important. All the way through the Bible, you see that sexual immorality and the worship of idols... Uh, they're the two kind of great Gentile sins as Israel looks out at the rest of the world. And they're connected because often in the ancient world, the place where sexual morality would happen would be in the temple. You'd go to the yeah. temple and be engaged in this kind of cult prostitution thing yeah. where the worship of idols is connected to sexual immorality. So yeah. they kind of go together. Um, that, I think, Jezebel is the name given to that. Kind of makes sense of Jezebel as well because I mean, we've already seen, you know, like we saw on Sunday, she is the one who entices Israel to go and worship Baal. But Kings also highlights her sexual immorality as well. Uh, 2 Kings chapter 9, this is sort of the end of Jezebel's story. Uh, Elisha the prophet anoints this guy Jehu as the king of Israel who's going to come and sweep through and destroy all the Baal worshippers. So he comes along to kill uh, Jezebel's son, Joram, who is king by this point. Uh, 2 Kings 9.22, when Joram saw Jehu, he asked, Have you come in peace, Jehu? And Jehu's kind of like this action hero, so he definitely hasn't. It's, 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 it's a really fun chapter. Like, it's kind of this brutal, like, comic violence chapter almost. Anyway, that's a whole other story. Um, Jehu says, How can there be peace as long as all the idolatry and witchcraft of your mother Jezebel abound? Mm. NIV says idolatry. The word there, it's literally like harlotry, like mm. whoring. Like, mm. the whoring of Jezebel abounds. Mm. And that is a spiritual thing. Like, in the Old Testament, idolatry often is characterized as adultery because you're forsaking your husband, the Lord, and going after other gods. In Jezebel's case, I think it's more than that. Uh, A little later on, when Jezebel finally meets Jehu and they kind of have a big showdown, uh, chapter 9, verse 30 of 2 Kings, then Jehu went to Jezreel. When Jezebel heard about it, she put on eye makeup, arranged her hair, and looked out of the window. And it's cryptic, but I think the sense there is uh, Jezebel there hears that the action hero is coming, and her response is... To seduce him, basically. Mm. I think is what's going on there. Try, try and disarm him by seducing him. Exactly, yeah. yeah. So, you know, that's a little thing where you see Jezebel's sexual morality. Yeah. Long story short. Yeah, long story short. But yeah, that's certainly, um, as she sort of, um, yeah, institutes this um, cultic worship, which is mm. largely around um, sexual immorality. So. Exactly. Okay. Uh, let's move towards a close, although we've still got, we've got five to go, but we might have to kind of pick up the pace a little here. <laughs> um, uh, some application. Yeah. Uh, can Christians starve to death? Um, yeah, this sort of raises uh, this question with the, this God, God's provision in the middle of a famine. Mm. What about for Christians? Can, can they starve to death? Or, or does the promise of Scripture make it impossible for uh, Christians to die of starvation? Yeah, great question. You know, God provides for Elijah through the ravens. Is he always going to provide food for us? Um, I mean, straight away, I think if you look at history, you'll see that Christians have starved to death. Mm. So straight away, that, that question is raised. I think the New Testament, as well as a book like Kings, gives us this expectation of kind of optimism, sorry, optimism and looking to God as the provider. You know, mm. Jesus 
says in the Sermon on the Mount, you know, don't worry about what you'll eat or what you'll drink or what you'll wear. You know, the Lord provides for the sparrows, he'll provide for you as well. Yeah. So that is the, the normal thing that God does, you know, day in, day out. You know, you go to Coles and there's milk on the shelf and bread there as well because God makes the rain come on the righteous and the unrighteous. He makes the crops grow. Yeah, God provides. That's the kind of, that's the thing he does in the world. I don't think that's an absolute promise that we will always have food all the time and that will always be provided in every sense and our life will continue indefinitely. We know that's not true because the Bible also says that man is destined to die and after that to face judgment. Hebrews mm-hmm. nine twenty seven. Yep. Death will come to us all. That's the verdict on sin. Yeah. Uh, God won't sustain your life miraculously forever and ever because that one day you're going to die and maybe that'll come through cancer and maybe that'll come through a car crash or maybe it'll come through the withdrawal of the provision of food and through starvation. Yeah. These bits of scripture that show us that the Lord provides, they show us what he does, but they're not absolute guarantees that God will always provide us yeah. a way out of every danger because in the end, we have to die. That That's that's the curse. That's the that's the way life is in the fallen world. Yeah. yeah. Does that help? Yeah, I think it does. And I, and I think, again, it, it brings us back to where our hope ultimately lies. It's mm. not with food forever in this creation. God yeah. points us to the great banquet in the new creation um, uh, yeah, where, where there will be no lack ever, um, or also no sin. And, but but while we're still in this world, God is gracious and gives us more than we deserve. But I don't think there's a promise that you know we might die by all means, but starvation. Uh, yeah, yeah, uh, we we will all suffer the curse of death mm. one one way or another. That's yeah. right. All right. Um, what is the place of intervening in the lives of non-believers? Um, yeah, Elijah seems to take this dead son, carries him into his own room. Um, is there a sort of echo of the, the, the parable of the Good Samaritan here, kind of um, crying out to God on behalf of, of non-God-fearing people? Mm. Intervening. It's, I'm trying to understand what they're worth getting at. Like, what should we do in the lives of non-believers? Like, we should love them. Um, mm. And I think Elijah here, I'm sure he did that. And, and more for this woman, you know, he's living the way God's providing for her. Yeah. Um, yeah, Galatians 6.10, you know, provide... Sorry, I should actually quote it, shouldn't I? Um, household of God and especially and everything, let me flick to it. Yeah, Galatians 6.10. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Mm. As God's people, we have a priority on loving our own, uh, but we also have... Uh, a command to do good to the world. So yeah, yeah. intervene on behalf of non-believers. Sure, love people. Yeah, be kind to them. Be generous. You know, share your wealth with those who are in need. You know, support children through compassion. Yeah. Provide for the food of others that way. That kind of thing. Yeah. Um, pray for non-believers. Yeah. In this, I think that that's you know, there's, there's kind of a picture here that Elijah prays for life to come to this dead boy. We have this spiritual analog where. We pray for those who are dead in sins that God would raise them to new life with Christ, that they'd believe the gospel and be regenerated and be reborn. So, yeah, pray for the, the non-believers in your life. Continue mm. doing that. That's important. Yeah. Yeah, great. Okay. Uh, miracles today. Do, why don't we, or do we perhaps, uh, see God performing miracles today, or, or is it just that we don't recognize them? Yeah. Uh, the natural question, I think, when you see a, a passage where a guy raises someone from the dead, <laughs> yeah. um, let's, you know... Is that something we do too? Mm. Do we see God perform miracles today? Again, like I don't think it's a hard no. Um, I I haven't seen anything particularly miraculous in my, my own life, but people I know and are close to have. You know, yeah. I've, I know yeah. people who've been healed of, healed of diseases, and the doctor said there's no way out. You know that kind of thing. Like I think it can happen. Yeah. 
Part of the answer, again, it's this progressive revelation thing. The times in the Bible where you see miracles happen is because God is saying something. Yeah. The three big locations of miracles, it's the Exodus, it's the life of Elijah and Elisha, and it's Jesus and the apostles. Most of the Bible, there's not miracles going on. Even yeah. most of Kings, most of the action is God works through the prophets and his yeah. word. He works through the armies of Assyria, you know, those kinds of things. Very Occasionally. Apparently human means exactly. God is working through. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but every now and again, you do get these bursts of fireworks because mm. they're moments where God is making this particularly loud and clear declaration of who he is. He mm. saves his people in the Exodus. He is emphatically against the Baal worship going on in Elijah's time. Yep. He's telling us who he is in the flesh, in Jesus. You know, there's, there's, mm. there's, there's a, the reason John calls miracles signs, I think, is significant. He doesn't yeah. just call them powerful deeds. He says signs. They're yeah. pointing to something. That's right. They're telling you something about God. So... In a sense, miracles aren't necessary today because God's already told us everything we need to know. Uh, we shouldn't expect signs from God because we've got them all. Everything that God needs us to know is written there for us in the pages of Scripture. All throughout the New Testament particularly, you see the, the time that miracles happen. It's attesting to someone's uh, credibility, if you like. Jesus is there, attested by signs and miracles. That's mm-hmm. the language used in Acts. And then in Acts, you know, Peter does a miracle and then Paul does a miracle. Like, there's these moments where the, the kind of transfer of leadership is signified by miracles happening. So they communicate something important in the Bible. And for us today, like we said at the start, God has spoken by his son, Hebrews 1, Revelation's final. For that element of miracle, it's done. Should we keep going on next question, resurrection? Some some of these will probably bring out some more of that, but just to kind of wrap that up, it's not Mm. that God can't do these things, it's just that God's God's purpose and intention for them is to point to things, but those things have been pointed to. And so we're kind of... God, God has given us all that he needs to give us at one level. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. We'll keep going. Yeah, let's keep going. Want to say, yeah. All right. Um, so um, why does God bring back... Um, uh, why does God not bring back, sorry, many people who um, have been prayed for in this way? So no doubt that the death of a, of a child is a tragic thing. Yeah. People would pray, God, come on, change this. Mm. Why doesn't he answer sometimes? Yeah. Real, I mean, we're into hard territory, aren't we? Death is awful. Like, death sucks. Um, and to see the promise of life here when you have lost people you care for, like, it's 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 hard to hear, isn't it? Wouldn't it be great if there were a way that God could bring back the people we've lost, even in this life? I think yeah. I feel that. Like, we do yeah. feel that. Resurrection is rare in the Bible. Uh, there's more to say, but let's start with that. Um, like I said, this is the first time in biblical history this happens. Everything up until 1 Kings 16 is... People die and they stay dead. Um, and I think of a passage like uh, 2 Samuel 12, after David goes and commits adultery with Bathsheba and she has a son, the prophet Nathan kind of comes confronting David, rebuking him, and David's son, his baby boy, is, is sick and David is there, you know, weeping and fasting and praying, sackcloth and ashes. And then you get the tragic note that the boy dies. And as soon as that happens, David gets up, mm. has a bath, like eat something and people say you know what are you doing and David says well now that he's you know while he was still sick there was a chance God might save him but now that he's gone that's it so now I'm going to get on with it that's the normal expectation exactly David says you know uh, I'll go down to Sheol to my son you know I'll go down to the grave but he will not come back to me that's Mm. David's expectation normal expectation is death is final It's, it's the brutal enemy it's the harsh reality of God's judgment on a sinful world so the fact that the boy lives in Working 17, it's mind-blowing. Like, this is this has never happened before, you know. And even in the rest of the Bible, I think it's it's something like five, six times throughout the Bible. You know, Elijah raises the boy. His successor, Elisha, performs a resurrection. 
Jesus raises the girl in Mark 5, Lazarus, John 11, you know, Paul raises Eutychus, and I think that's about it. Like, there might be a couple more, but you think of the millions and billions of people who've lived, and so far in this age, you know, five or six have come back from the dead, only to die again, so even there, they're they're kind of, sometimes they're called resuscitations rather than resurrections, because they're just back to a life that still ends. Like, death, like, death will take us all. That's the kind of message here. So, should we expect people to, you know, to, to come back to life now when they die? I think the answer is no, by and large. Well, sorry, not even by and large. The answer is no. You look at the New Testament advice to people who are grieving loved ones who have died, and the advice is never, well, you should pray that God would bring them back to life now because Elijah could do it, so why can't you? Um, yeah. look, you look at a passage like 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, which is one of these really important verses to turn to in those moments of grief. 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul writes, Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. This is a passage saying, you know, your friends and loved ones have died. Paul says, this is what I want you to know. Mm. Does he say, well, you should pray that they would come back to life now because Elijah could do that? No, he says, verse 14, for we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Mm. And he goes on to talk about the last day when the Lord will come down and the last trumpet and the dead in Christ will rise. Like when people die, our hope is not that God can just turn the lights on again for them now. It's that he will do that in the future. It is that on the last day, all those in Christ will be raised to life, to life that will never end. So that is our hope. We don't look to these temporary resurrections now. Like it wouldn't even be that good, you know. You, you find, I, I kind of think about it sometimes, you know, if you're a Christian, you, you've died and you finally get to go to be with Jesus and be with glory and everyone else around you saying, well, no, come back to this world. Like, mm. the last place you want to come back to is this world full of sin and death, isn't it? Like, mm. we die and go to be with Jesus with the hope that one day we will be raised to life forever with Jesus. So, yeah. I don't think we expect resurrection in this age. I, I, think, I think that's right. And, and again, the Bible's sort of, where does it point us? It points us to the end. It points us to the new, the new creation uh, and that that is the place where our hope is found and, and calls us to pray, bring on that day, bring mm. on the return of Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. Um, all right, um, last question. This passage makes me think of hashtag wake up Olive from about a year ago. It was, it was just at the start of the pandemic where, mm. where uh, Bethel Church joined in prayer for, for young Olive, a, a little girl who died, kind of child of one of the worship leaders, I think, at the church. Um, how should we think about praying to God for people to come back to life when they die? Is that something we should trust God to perhaps do today if we experience the death of a child? Yeah, um, I have to fight hard to speak clearly here because this whole saga makes me quite angry. Mm. <laughs> um, everything I just said, I think, applies. Like Our normal expectation in this life is, is death is the end of life in this world, and Jesus has promised us life beyond that. But like I said, I don't think we expect that to happen now, before Jesus returns. Yeah. For all the things I've just said. Um, more than that, uh, like this, I think what happened, like, you can kind of see how you get there. Like, yeah, we believe that God can do anything. You know, we see in the Bible, God raised people to life. Let's pray for that to happen. Mm. Like, you can kind of understand how uh, you would go down that line. Yeah. But I just think it's, I think in the end it's bad theology yeah. that leads to horrifically terrible pastoral practice like yeah. it's bad theology because it's uh it's what we call an over-realized eschatology it's looking to the life that god has promised us in the future on the last day and trying to bring that into the now when really it's not for the now it's for the future mm. so it's bad on a theological level but when that kind of theology drives you to a practice where you're there you know stirring up this church in a frenzy with the expectation that god is going to raise this girl to to life now which i don't think is a legitimate expectation 
Like I just yeah, I just think it's disastrous and mm. yeah, really dev- you can you can imagine how devastating it must have been for that community for to have that kind of expectation and that hope build up and then for it not to happen. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, yeah. I, I, I emphatically think that is not something that we should be doing now. Yeah. When we are in those moments of awful I mean losing a little girl, like it's yeah, it's a tragedy. But I think in those moments it's one Thessalonians four that we need. We we need mm. the comfort that those who fall asleep in Christ will one day be raised to a life that is imperishable and far, far better than the life that we have now. And I think, I mean, it's, it's a, like you said, it's a total tragedy. And there is a sense that for parents, and, and, you know, I haven't had to bear this grief, but two of my dear friends have had to bear the grief of losing children. And uh, they carry a, a grief with them that you can't even put into words. And, um, and, and at one level, every part of you thinks, well, it would be so wonderful just to bring the child back to to kind of uh, take away that grief because, yeah. because what they're carrying hurts so much. But I think actually they are closer to seeing this world in its true uh, sense, in, in all of its brokenness, and, they, and, and to realize that this world is not the hope. And so like you said, Jack, to bring children back as... As much as that would, at one level, kind of be a balm to, to, to that grief, yeah, uh, it's not the answer. The answer is what God has done through Christ and his resurrection and then what God will ultimately do in uh, kind of decreating and then recreating this world so that it no longer bears the stains of sin and death and pain and sickness and all that stuff, but is actually perfectly renewed as it should be. And, and that... And then God calls on us to say, wait patiently for that. Mm. That is where your hope is. It's not in kind of putting a patch on this as much as our heart would yearn to see our child again. Yeah. Well said. Yeah. Well, there you go, mate. Uh, that's our 17 questions. Uh, we're a little longer today than usual, but these are important issues. And thanks for walking us through them and, and helping us to, to yeah, get our, our thoughts straight. That's right. Uh, yeah, if you track with us and you're still listening thus far, well, well done. Well we done. hope this has been the a blessing to you. you that are still listening, well done. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> By now, we're probably in like fast forward mode. So yes, let me say in my high, high-pitched, squeaky, double-time voice that you're listening to, yep. yeah, hope yep. this has been helpful for you. This weekend, uh, all the teenagers are off to awesome. We're praying for a great weekend for, for all of them, thinking about the cross and all that Jesus has done. Uh, church on Sunday, we've got a couple of preachers. Uh, Matt Gillespie, our student ministers, uh, bring the word. Yeah, Matt is preaching on Mark 2 uh, at early morning and morning church, looking yep. at Jesus' power to forgive sins and bring in the new creation. You know, so nice. many things we're talking about. And Raj? Raj, I don't know what Raj is preaching. Raj so is preaching on the word. Looking and, forward uh, to finding that out at North Rocks and Arvo and Night Church. We'll, we'll look forward to finding that out with you on Sunday. Fantastic. And then uh, we'll be back to uh, Ephesians the week after. We may or may not be with you next week. Uh, we'll just see what comes uh, send your questions in and if they're enough we'll, we'll have a go at tackling them thanks for tuning in thanks for all your questions and we'll see you on Sunday bye bye